Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne is joined by co-host Sarita Wright for a new episode with Joe Moore, co-founder and CEO of Psychedelics Today, a leading media and educational platform that explores and discusses the academics, the science, and the research of psychedelics. Joe's been active for 20 years in the psychedelic space and works to help steward the movement in an optimal direction for the overall betterment of humanity. Most recently, he was appointed to the Board of Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, formerly the Plant Medicine Coalition. In this episode, Ann and Sarita chat with Joe about his journey into psychedelics via holotropic breathwork, some of the lesser-known psychedelic compounds and what makes them unique, and his new streaming show, Psychedelics Tonight. Joe also provides his thoughts on the role of the FDA and the DEA in psychedelics therapy, the current state of the psychedelics industry in Oregon, as well as what he's looking for as things continue to develop. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Joe Moore, co-founder and CEO of Psychedelics Today. Joe Moore, co-founder and CEO of Psychedelics Today. We're so excited to have you uh, on the pod today. So by way of background, um, you have a really interesting one. Can you walk through um, how you got into this crazy industry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I think I had a number of weird encounters in my youth, but I don't. I think they were just kind of priming me. I uh, did. I started my undergrad thinking I was going to be a computer programmer. Ended up switching immediately to philosophy and the first book assigned to me as part of my philosophy program had references to Stanislav Grof's LSD psychotherapy. Really, really spooky stories that, you know, I was saying, wait a second, I'm paying for this education. This is supposed to be real. Is this real? Because it looked more like a story out of Exorcist or Poltergeist, but it was seemed also like wildly effective therapy. And like, why had I not heard of this? Why is LSD only being demonized? So um, thankfully, my school had four or five books by Groff, and I just started as a college freshman digging into very technical um, literature by one of the world's foremost psychiatrists and, you know, the guy who's been with more people under the influence of LSD in a clinical setting than anybody else on earth. So pretty good starting point <laughs> and, you know, eventually landed into some breath work. Um, that Stan Groff later uh, co-developed with his um, late wife, Christina. And yeah, just kind of started doing that every every quarter. Um, it was like monthly to every quarter for a long time um, before I even started trying psychedelics. But I, I thought I wanted to work for MAPS, you know, in my early days, decided I didn't want to be a therapist eventually. Uh, so I started doing a lot of community organizing in Boston getting people engaged in the topic, um, later brought that to Denver and Boulder and, uh, realized it was more appropriate for me to live up in the mountains. <laughs> and, uh, now I live, um, uh, in the mountains outside Denver and have been here for a bunch of years doing psychedelics today, the whole time I've been here. 
Um, and really the whole purpose behind psychedelics today was to bring the word um, of Stan Groff, transpersonal psychology and Holtzberg breathwork more into the conversation around psychedelics. And you two both know that I've changed a little bit since then, but um, <laughs> you know, it's still kind of core to where I'm at. You know, I love that um, you have always been really ingrained in thinking about the community. And that's one thing that's definitely translated into the Psychedelics Today brand. You know, you guys are one of the few companies that's actually concerned about even respecting indigenous psychedelic communities and practices. Can you talk about why that's important to the brand? <sighs> I'll talk about why it's important to me and, you know, <laughs> by, you know, um, association, the brand. So, um, I grew up with a lot of stories about native Americans in my household. You know, we learned a lot about, um, a lot of really incredible stories, a lot of the tragedies. And, um, at a certain point, I'm like, these people have been through plenty. Like we don't want to be stepping on their rights anymore. Um, and their wishes anymore. We have plenty relative to what they have and it's just not okay. Um, you know, so in particular, this topic comes up around peyote quite a bit and this has gotten me probably lost me a number of friends. Um, and this, this is actually a kind of a nuanced topic and I'm starting to understand the nuances more, but the cactus like peyote take, you know, 15 to, you know, a gazillion years to mature <laughs> and, and people are consuming them at, at a quite an alarming rate and, um, they're really hard to cultivate. Um, so, you know, should we as, you know, Westerners, um, you know, some of us being colonizers, you know, uh, or descendants of at least. And, you know, how do we think about what's fair? You know, should we even be considering what's fair? You know, you hear the, the guy on TV saying life's not fair and you're like, oh yeah, totally. So yeah, I should act like life's not fair too. Or should we work towards, you know, bringing back some sense of fairness? Um, so we talk about that quite a bit here. Um, you know, the current stance I take is that, you know, um, people with European descent should probably try their best not to consume peyote. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it in such a like deliberate alarming way, but it's kind of, it's kind of at that point with peyote that said, this is the view of the native American church, which represents a lot of tribal interest groups. What about Mexico? Like, what about the tribes there? And what do they think? Like, should my kind of like absolutist opinion also <laughs> impact them and how they should show up in the world? No, I think, I think this is just a longer debate and, you know, we can be kind of allies in supporting that discussion and like helping with conservation. So you guys at, at psychedelics today, um, are in a really interesting place in this ecosystem and in that, um, half of your business is, um, is education and therapist mm -hmm. training. Um, and the other half, and I mean, I don't know if 60, 40, 70, whatever it is, um, is this, you know, education, I'm sorry, a media company content side, um, doing really innovative things, um, to, to educate the community, um, and those interested in issues like this. So, um, can you talk about how, how you fit into the ecosystem here, because there are so many, you know, uh, and our clients are, you know, are publicly traded companies or their, their maps and their PBCs. And you guys have just an interesting place in, in the community here. <laughs> right. So we don't have to deal with regulators in the same way that a lot of these biotech companies do. Um, we're, we're people out here just trying to say the truth. 
or what we believe the truth to be. And, um, we don't necessarily have those same kinds of, you know, concerns to deal with. I wanted to say handcuffs, but like, it's a real concern. Like you have to get through the FDA. You have to maintain a good image, right? It's hard. Um, we don't necessarily have those limitations. So we can say things that most PhDs might actually even have impact their, you know, <laughs> their next promotion or tenure track or whatever. Like I talk to these PhDs offline and they tell me plenty. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, you're pretty weird too. Great. Like, just don't <laughs> let, don't let your supervisors know. Right. And, um, similarly with biotech, you can't, you have to stay really on point. Like these companies are in a really precarious situation, um, because they've got years before they've got anything that's sellable in many cases. And, um, you know, some are going to be absolute angels, like explode and be like, you know, the next Tylenol or something. Right. But what, what about the rest of them? Like, we're going to lose a lot of IP. We're going to, you know, people are going to lose money. Um, but, you know, our place is telling the truth, saying things like that about public private markets and also talking about all of the issues that the community wants to hear about. Um, you know, we, we are from the community um, and we're building content for the community. Um, and, you know, but trying to build that bridge because a lot of people are really afraid of business. I'm, I'm not like, I see that there's a lot of risks to people operating at scale here, but I also see massive opportunity, massive, massive, massive. Um, and you know, I, here's a strange analogy and this like kind of transcends the psychedelic conversation a little bit into the drug war topic, which you both know is prime for me. So, um, how do we, how do we balance this idea of, um, you know, psychedelic exceptionalism. So, you know, the number we like to use um, when we talk about veterans and PTSD is like 22 suicides a day in veteran populations, which is just a shitload. And then uh, when we compare that to the number of overdose deaths per year in America, that's like 10%. So it's an uphill battle both ways. Like, why don't we look at how do we stop harming people? And then how do we start healing people as well? I'd say we do both at the same time, but let's not pretend like one's more important than the other. Can you go back and, and sure. just talk a little bit about what this psychedelic exceptionalism is? I mean, I know that it was, um, I recently read Carl Hart's new book um, and it was Thank pretty, you for doing that. it was pretty, oh, he's, I love him. Which one? Um, I, uh, drug use for grownups. Um, but I read the other one too, which was his more his memoir. Um, High price. Thank you. Um, but he talks about I'm this. Obsessed. Psych, psych, yeah, he's fantastic. And he talks about this, um, this psychedelic exceptionalism in one definition. And I just don't know if that's the same definition that you have of it. So I'm wondering if you give your definition because you're the <laughs> expert and I am not. Uh, Koa Hart's the expert. I try. <laughs> I try to mimic. So, um, yeah, he's my favorite. It's kind of like one of my new Bibles is um, drug use for grownups. So... <sighs> my drugs are better than your drugs. And because you use those drugs, you're, you know, dirty, dangerous and belong in jail. You know, that's kind of part of it. Um, and one of the biggest examples Carl Hart brings up is that people in, you know, ancient literature around opium are having the same mystical experiences that people are reporting with LSD. Um, and as we know, um, well, a lot of universities are saying things like the bigger the mystical experience, the bigger the healing. Um, and that's been being repeated for ages. So like, why is it the case that LSD is better than opium? Like 
we overstate and moralize the risk around addiction extensively. Um, and you know, why, why is Burning Man better than like any other festival? You know, it's, it's not, it's just better for those people who really love it. Right. People are going to find their niche same way around drugs. You know, not everybody likes coffee as much as I do. Therefore huge addiction, <laughs> but you know, like there's, um, there's just so many ways to look at this and to think that only the medical context is appropriate is, is a farce because we've been using substance for many thousands of years, including psychedelic substance. And, um, even in America, before the whole drug war thing kicked off, we were actively able to buy cocaine and opium at the store and people handled addiction quite well. This whole new thing around addiction seems like somewhat of a new construct um, and is, you know, it's moralized to the point where, oh, you have an addiction, you're weak, you know, and, you know, the, yeah, I could go on a four year drug war rant right now, but uh, let's go get me back on the rails if you could. Oh man, I don't want to get you on the rails. <laughs> I mean, I, because I do think it's, um, just to stay on this topic one, just a little bit longer, because I really do find it interesting that, um, you know, Carl Hart's, um, you know, one of his, his premises are, is that, um, you know, not everyone who tries drugs becomes a drug addict. And there is a place for, for, um, these substances in bettering your life. Um, and that, there is, there has been, um, intertwined in this, a lot of racism, um, a lot of, um, uh, class war ism, um, and having this, um, idea. And I, rem and I, I've spoken to, to someone close in my life, who's a police officer, um, and who had the complete opposite reaction to, to my reaction to Carl Hart's book. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it's, um, you know, an interesting discussion to, to keep having because, um, how many people do we know have, have tried substances and they're not, they're not addicted. Um, and you know, the fact that we demonize, we jail people, um, you know, that, that are addicted, you know, it just isn't, isn't the way to go about this. So how do you, and, and this kind of idea that, um, oh, I've well, got something about PCP when we're ready. Oh, go, um, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> so, go. um, Carl Hart at Horizons, um, I think it was 2019, um, probably. I was there. Uh, he showed a film um, in front of this whole audience of psychedelic folks of a person uh, under the influence of PCP walking away from some police officers and getting shot nine times in the back, walking away from a police officer and getting shot nine times in the back. And PCP, quite psychedelic, it's the precursor, like historical precursor to ketamine. It was used in surgical, you know, for surgical anesthesia. It just had too many unwanted side effects, of course. Um, and, you know, like how racist is that to say, hey, look, like, you know, all these other substances should be investigated, but not PCP. And there's a pretty loyal fan base of PCP users out there. Um, they deserve protection as well. Um, you know, the amount of drug harm from the drug war is unconscionable. Multi-billion dollar a year project, this drug war. Um, I think we're $2 trillion in since like Nixon, which is super fun. You know, what could we do as schools with that money? Not to mention all the other tragedy <laughs> that's caused because of it. And yeah, so why? There's no straight answer here. 
Um, and like, we're going to tell stories about clinical success, but we're not going to tell these like other, the other side, the tragedy and why, why, you know, senators, politicians need to know what they've done and what they're, you know, even us as citizens in this representative democracy need to understand that we're complicit in this. Our tax dollars go to hurt people <laughs> actively, um, domestically and internationally because of the war on drugs. And it's just not okay. And, you know, just because I like LSD and there's clinical studies to suggest LSD is great for people, similarly, mushrooms, iboga, et cetera, like that's not a full picture. Like I call decriminalized nature, decriminalized some nature. I think they're just like a somewhat ridiculous organization. They're doing some good laying the groundwork totally, but it's far too incremental for how much pain and suffering is actively being created every day by the war on drugs and sustained. Yeah. You know, I, I think you raised some really, really good points, Joe. And one question that I have is if these, you know, this psychedelic renaissance that we're currently in, if the idea is to help people who are hmm. you know, suffering and traditional medicine has not worked, traditional therapy may has may have not worked, and knowing what you know, what Anne knows, Dr. Carl Hart, what responsibility do these biotech companies have to actually, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, shake the table and actually say, well, this medicine are, is for these communities. So mm. what if, you know, it's 2022, why are, you know, why are they so hesitant to have those conversations when this, again, is supposed to be for the people who need it most? Confuses the regulators is my answer. Like they, they have a really hard job ahead of them. And it's not easy, you know, and I'm talking about the small biotechs. Like when you're, when you're sitting on 500 million of cash in the bank or above, like there's some extra responsibility there in my opinion. Um, but if you're just barely cutting it by, you know, bringing your thing through clinical trials, the good that you could bring through completing the clinical trials, pretty huge. Um, but you know, on the other side, like these big organizations, I think do have some responsibility, but I think, you know, just given the nature of, corporations as such, they're legally obligated to, you know, maximize shareholder return. And, you know, they're, they're bound by law to do that. So, you know, that's a big reason. Um, I think, you know, MAPS Public Benefit Corp is doing some really cool stuff. Like they're, they're shaking up the model. I think this is the first ever nonprofit to bring drugs through the FDA in this way. So like, that's really cool. Um, they were a nonprofit, now Public Benefit Corp, right? So like, and there is going to be some public benefit. But I would like more people to be thinking about this. Um, absolutely. Because how do we, you know, what, I almost like to think of it as transcending what the human wants. And like technology is going to do some things that corporations aren't ready for, right? Like I, I heard of a lab recently at a university creating psychedelics for two to three pennies a dose. And so if that, gets done at scale, like the cost, at least on the substance side is tremendously low. I think we need to break this kind of framework of we need, you know, a licensed professional in the room in order to, to achieve scale. Like I think religious access will be a really big win. So say for example, you know, all the churches in DC Metro can now all of a sudden do this. Like imagine the amount of healing in DC if, you know, if people choose to engage. And it's already got a community container, which is huge. Therapists can't really provide that too often. Like it's it's an extra service that's like really difficult to curate. Wait, but what what is a community container? 
So um, say, for example, churches in D.C. metro, I'm just picking a, a metropolitan area, were able to start offering psychedelic services at their church somehow, then there's already a community baked in there. So, you know, you can have your experience, you can do your therapy, but you also have a group of people that understand and want to support you and probably already like you, if not love you. Like, that's a pretty cool thing. Like in my breathwork community, I had so much support and so many people just like recurring characters coming through and doing the work with me. And, you know, we got to know each other really well and had really beautiful relationships, like mutual support and aid kind of things. And that's really amazing. And I think church access, once we get there, could be really, really great. And so this is, you know, a challenge for the corporate folks. Like what happened, like mushrooms are always going to be cheap. It's like six to $10 to start your own grow, like maybe 20 on the high end if you're being, you know, a little extravagant. And like, how do, how does biotech compete with that other than accelerating the drug war? You know, it's, it's tough. It's a really hard conversation. Well, this is kind of a good lead in for mm. talking about the Oregon market. Um, mm. and how <laughs> I just got back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So, <laughs> you know, can you, can you give a like 30,000 foot overview of, of what's happening in Oregon? Why are all eyes on it? Mm. And, and did you, did <laughs> nice you see there. what I did there? Yeah, see what I did good. there? So yeah. we've had a show for a little while, eyes on Oregon, <laughs> uh, with John Dennis, an attorney in Oregon doing some really cool, um, work following we'll put a link into our notes here. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, so high level, um, the citizens of Oregon voted to approve legal psilocybin services. Um, what this looks like largely is supported adult use. They're trying, I believe, to skirt this idea that it's a medical thing because there's no FDA approval. And a lot of these folks hold kind of licenses that, you know, FDA, DEA looks at, you know, therapists, um, don't necessarily have a bond there, but, you know, they look towards federal leadership. Same thing with, you know, physicians, psychiatrists, et cetera. So, um, you know, if, if somebody with a license goes in the room, they could really get in trouble. But anyway, legal services, there's going to be licenses for facilitators, service centers, manufacturing, so grow sites and like product development and then testing centers. Um, for psilocybin only. For psilocybin only, only through oral application, right? So somebody with stomach cancer or throat <laughs> cancer who can't swallow, out of luck, um, which is really sad. Um, so like transdermals out, nasal sprays are out. Um, yeah, there's other forms, but you know, all that's out. So oral only, psilocybin only, only from the strain psilocybe cubensis. There's rumor that they're going to be doing genetic testing per batch to verify it's psilocybe cubensis you know, regulators doing regulators. That's going to cost so much money, right? Yeah, like, totally. especially for something that's so cheap to make, you're going to mm -hmm. make it. Okay. Okay. So there's going to be there. a robust black market. Like this is what we see in cannabis, right? A robust legal market leading towards an even more robust black market on account of taxes and all this fun stuff. Um, so yeah, you'll have to be consuming mushrooms on a certified site. Um, and there's going to be some sort of ratio of sitters to facilitators um, there. We're developing a training program. This is why I know so much. Um, I think it's around one facilitator to eight trippers. Um, and the rules are really loose. I've been saying this a lot and nobody has challenged me yet. Music venues are still in bounds. It would just be a really expensive concert. Um, so, you know, th there's a lot of flexibility here. Uh, the expense is really high. So it's a problem, but I think we'll get through it.
Um, you know, we just, this is the first time this has happened. It's going to be a lot of challenges. Um, there have been, <laughs> there's going to be plenty more, you know, uh, one risk though, is this is federally illegal. What's going to happen when somebody, you know, tips off our friendly DEA, um, like are, is somebody going to lose all of their assets for getting involved in the business? Um, there's a chance, um, absolutely a chance of federal seizure. And the state of Oregon has not put out anything um, saying that they're going to push back on the feds. Who Who is this? Who is the intended consumer of the Oregon market? You know, like if I'm trying to address trauma, uh, you know, and things of that nature, mm-hmm. should I just be going out into this, you know, open Oregon market or, you know, <laughs> so you, you have know, to go to a facility to buy even the substance. Um, so like, I don't think you're allowed to buy it and just walk around. Um, that's, I could be wrong there, but like you have to go buy, you know, product at their kind of like dispensary model, which is built into the, you know, facilitator site. It might even be totally transparent to you what the packaging looks like, you know? So, um, that said psilocybin isolate is allowed, but you can't do synthetic psilocybin. Um, so like you have to extract it from mushrooms. You can't just make it. So that, that is actually a really cool option in that it's probably easier for people to keep in their stomach. Like some, some people still have nausea, even if they're really sick, but you know, really honestly, they could just put the powder in their mouth and let it dissolve. And hopefully it goes like sublingually, you know, maybe that breaks the rules though. Cause it's not exactly oral, <laughs> but your mouth is involved, but it's your tongue. Who knows? There's so much left to figure out here. Microdosing barely made it in. You know, in terms of the target market, Sarita, it was supposed to be affordable and accessible to the state. It's not going to be, you know, like I think unless we see some sort of inclusion of religious or community access, we're not going to see really great um, numbers of people accessing this. Um, and I, I think the religious project is is probably the right one in order to um, leverage existing institutions and, you know, serve a huge number of people. That definitely makes sense. Um, just in terms of when you think about religious communities, a lot of communities, you know, their their chaplain or their pastor, that opinion weighs a lot, you know, on the decisions mm-hmm. they make in their households, even down to how they vote, you know, in elections. So to have that kind of stamp of approval um, could be really beneficial to have. I've been working uh conspiring or inspiring priests to, um, you know, take this topic on quite seriously. How could we, you know, uh, you know, so I'm talking to mostly Christian folks and it's pretty easy to leverage the Jesus story to like make a compelling argument. What was that burning bush? (laughs) I've been there actually, uh, base of Mount Sinai. It's an old Greek Orthodox church monastery. It's fascinating. Really? It's the burning bush. I have oh. my doubts. Okay. Because <laughs> there's a whole nother, there's another book on my bookshelf that I haven't read yet. The Immortality Key. Joe, I mm, feel like you it. definitely have read that. Yeah. Um, and I know we're limited on time. So I wanted to make sure we talked about psychedelics tonight because mm. you have just launched this great new show and I want you to plug it. So go. <laughs> Thank you. Psychedelics Tonight uh, was made in partnership with Altered TV, A-L-T-R-D.TV. Um, we, we got approached and we said yes. Um, it was one of the easiest agreements I've ever signed with a production <laughs> team. We did five episodes, uh, two on a boga, uh, novel compounds, I think tryptamines, and then biosynthetics. So like 
you know, what happens when we start modifying genes and things to produce things at crazy cheap rates, um, costs otherwise. So yeah, we do it kind of like a, a late night TV show format. So Kyle and I'll do some like monologues. Um, Kyle Buller is our co-host here um, and co-founder. So we'll do some monologues, um, kind of die. How do you even call it? It's kind of like we're doing our own soliloquies, but we're on stage together kind of thing. So, it's a, it's almost do, like the, what's the, um, between two ferns. It gave me that vibe a little bit, a little bit, a little, little bit, bit, cause a little bit. Kyle and I love those people. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so we're trying to make a smart, but funny show. And how do we keep people entertained when we're talking, you know, molecular biology, talking, you know, shamanism, not everybody's super psyched, but if we have a cool set, we had some cool animations before and after, I love the director, by the way, Sawyer Hurwitz, like beautiful animation. Um, sometimes really funny, sometimes a little crass. I love it. Um, not everybody's going to love it, but um, I've received well, so much positive feedback already. that's not the way to plug already. it. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's going to love it. <laughs> everybody's going to love it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I like to insert humor. And if we can't make jokes, like, what are we doing? Yep. Um, so that's where I come. That's my starting point often. So, you know, first episode just aired yesterday, the 26th, we're recording on the 27th. I had a screening party. Everybody seemed to love it. You know, um, how else are you going to educate somebody in 20 something minutes on Iboga at that level, including giving them context around the origin story, indigenous tribes in Gabon, um, who've been using this stuff forever. It's incredible. It's incredible that that guy showed up in that outfit. That's his traditional ceremonial outfit. And we didn't even know. He just comes on. I'm like, oh, we got to do an interview like that. This will be fun. <laughs> so um, we will. And mm -hmm. it's free, right? Absolutely. Free Streaming on Alter free. TV. You can yes. get it on Roku, Apple, Samsung TV, Plex, like Android TV all over. Okay. Yeah. We will include a link in our show notes, but, um, for anyone interested, um, definitely watch it. It's a hoot and, um, really informative. So, um, Joe Moore, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, and we definitely want you back cause I feel like we got through like three questions that we had for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both for having me. It was super fun. Thank you, Joe. Our thanks again to Joe Moore, CEO and co-founder of Psychedelics Today. For more info, please visit psychedelicstoday.com and definitely check out Psychedelics Tonight on Altered TV. That's A-L-T-R-D dot TV. Also, we want to hear from you. Email, email us at greenrush at kcsa.com and you can connect with us on our social channels on Twitter at the underscore greenrush, Instagram, the greenrush underscore podcast. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the greenrush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take Shay, one take.